of our church in England are middle class. It makes me want to throw up. Um, why don't people tell people on the estates about Jesus? Why don't we tell people in the inner city? I don't know. So I've written a little parable called Chips. And this is a parable about a... I'll try again. This is a parable about a... Chip, that's right. And this just helps people to understand Jesus from a working class background. 50 pubs a week are closing in Britain. You tell me where you've seen a chip shop close. They're not closing. People understand chips. So these, there's a dozen of these each. A dozen of these each on there. And it's first come, first serve. And I'll give them to Christian. So if people don't get them, it's your fault. And the, the rest are in that posh bag there. So one of the things I like to do is to write about Jesus in a language that people who are not Christians understand. I very rarely write stuff for Christians. Plenty of people do that. But this is to introduce the person of Jesus to people like me who are way outside the church because Christians never bothered to tell me about Jesus. And I think it's shocking. Thank you. Tony, uh, just uh, briefly, uh, a little uh, insight into how you got led into the Anglican clergy. And then perhaps out of that, I, I know that for about 13, 14 years, you were a vicar in, in um, Manchester on the edge of Mossside. And I wonder if you could just maybe share a little bit of that and also perhaps drop a few names in terms of your contacts with Manchester City whilst you were there, <laughs> if that's all right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt called to Christian ministry. I'm very happy in the Church of England. I'd be very happy in the Pentecostal Church. It doesn't interest me. Denominations don't interest me. I felt called to the Anglican Church because certainly as a vicar and as a bishop, I can get to people because they understand what a bishop is. So, for example, I'll give you one simple example. Uh, in Manchester, one of the independent churches wanted to have a prayer meeting with the MP, who's a liberal Jew. They wrote to him and wrote to him and wrote to him, and he didn't reply. So they, they rang me up and they said, why can't we get in contact with this MP? All we want to do is have a prayer meeting with him. And I said, well, I see him regularly because he knows what a vicar is. You expect the vicar to know the MP on a personal level. And I said, I'll tell him you're not a cult, and I'll chair the meeting, and we'll call two ordinary people from each of the churches in the constituency to have a prayer meeting. And he said, yes, straight away. Because people who are not Christians understand what a vicar is, they understand what a bishop is, and, and I'm neutral. I never ask people in the city or the county for money. Never. Never. And they don't see me coming and run because they think I'm coming to serve them, not to take things from them. And so we're able to do all sorts of things in Nottingham and in the county because I am able to have a relationship with people in the community. So on Wednesday night uh, in Manchester, have a Google later redeeming our communities because this is the police and the Christian church working together in areas of violent crime. And the police would tell you where, where the churches and the police get involved in areas of violent crime. This was particularly Salford. Violent crime, statistically, according to police statistics, come down. In Salford, it's come down by 11%. Now, when you come from Moss Side, like I do, that is pretty significant because it means less people get killed. And I do less funerals. And it's really serious. So we're doing um, a tour of the nation, 10 city tours over three years to encourage the police and the community and the churches to work together. And as a vicar and as a bishop, police will speak to me and I can facilitate that. It's a very simple example, but I hope it gives you an idea of why I'm in the Church of England, but love every Christian denomination, every Christian denomination. And when I speak 
I spoke a week last Thursday to people who have a ministry to people who've been through uh, cocaine, heroin, and prostitution, a marvelous ministry called Bethel. Um, I was able to preach there as an evangelist and, and, and try and lead people to Christ and bring healing and brokenness because they will listen to a bishop, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and I can say to the other churches in Birmingham, which is where I was, you should be working with these people because they're real Christians. As the body of Christ, we work together to bring healing to the community and the living Lord Jesus to people to lead them to him. Yeah. Uh, and a few name drops from Manchester City. Yeah. <sighs> well, I can, I can say, are we being recorded? Um. And, um, and, and what you don't know, and I didn't tell you, was we thrashed Germany 2 0. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's very influential in, in uh, Christians in sport, of course, as well. Tony, two final questions one frivolous, one serious. The serious one first you mentioned young people tonight, and there are a number of young people around the room. If there's one piece of advice you could give, not only to young people, but to all of us tonight, that is sort of. Uh, steered you in terms of life and ministry, what would that be? The frivolous one is now that we're out of the World Cup, who's going to win it? <laughs> I suppose my advice to young people, uh, there are two things, both related to reading the scriptures, and that's what I encourage you to do above all. It's very easy to be influenced by personalities. Don't put Christians on pedestals. Right? Don't put Christians on pedestals. We worship Jesus alone. And you, you are part of a culture, and, and the fault is ours because we've given it to you, which puts celebrities on pedestals. That is a bad idea, including Christians. We worship Jesus alone. Um, and I've worked with high-profile Christians for a long time. And one of the reasons I was one of the people that started Christians in Sport was to say that we are a ministry to sport, not from sport. Do not put Christians on pedestals. And I was given a very simple phrase when I was first converted. And people think it's simplistic, but I think it's profound. It says this, read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. It's a Sunday school chorus, and it is dead right. Read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. And when I first became a Christian, every week I sat down with an older Christian at 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon after training, so I was a bit tired, but four o'clock every Thursday afternoon, we sat down together and we read through Paul's second letter to Timothy. Because Paul, the writer of 2 Timothy, had been on the road for about 30 years as an evangelist, Bible teacher, planter, pastor. And he was writing a letter to a young Christian emerging into leadership, which I pray all of you are. And that advice from Paul in 2 Timothy chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 is absolute gold dust, and it has stayed with me for nearly 40 years. Amazing. Nearly 40 years. Read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. Do not put Christians on pedestals, even if they're athletes. And sit down with an older Christian and read slowly and prayerfully through 2 Timothy, because it will help you emerge into leadership. Frivolous question, who's going to win? I'd be... I still think I'd go for Germany. My heart, my heart is for Ghana because they're the only African team left in the World Cup. I've been to Africa. I love it. And I hope you know they have a prayer meeting before they play.
Thank you, Tony. Let's show our appreciation again. Thank you. to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father, said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will bring your word alive to us this evening and make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, if you're a parent, you will understand the two words in verse 12. I've got four children, and we often used to hear these words, particularly when they were teenagers. It was these two words. Give me. Give me. And if it was followed by one word, it was now. Give me now. Give me sports equipment, because sir says I've got to have new boots for tomorrow. Right. Give me money now for a school trip. And you say, where's the school trip? And they say, Switzerland. And you say, what's the purpose of the school trip? And they say, dad, it's educational. 
Or you say, your children say, give me money now for a multiplex cinema. And we say to them, what's that? Or my children used to say, particularly my girls, I have to admit, I need money for clothes. And I would say to them, but you've got some. (laughs) Give me now. But this request in this story is much more serious than that. For not only is the son claiming his inheritance, but the father knows it's going to be wasted. For the father always knows his son, particularly where money is concerned. A father would tell you, when a son starts going on holiday on his own, he either spends up on the first day, or he plans it out and comes back with some to spare. Where money is concerned, a father always knows his son. So you can imagine the scene, let's bring it up to 2010, and the son says to his father, Dad, you are my frustration. Your rules and your petty regulations and your limitations. Dad, you are cramping my style. I am 18. And that money in the building society belongs to me. And I brought the form for you to sign. I want my money... And I want it now because I'm going to make a life for myself. Who said this? I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. This is for the older people. Who said it? Yeah, you've got it. Shout a bit louder. Freddie Mercury. Now, you may not have heard of him, but he used to sing at Wembley Stadium about freeing Nelson Mandela. And he sang like this. And if you know it, join in. Otherwise, you'll have to listen to a solo. I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. Now this time we'll join in. (laughs) And when we get to now, you say now. Have you got it? You told me they were sharp. Right. (laughs) Try again. Imagine I'm Freddie Mercury. Use your imagination. (laughs) I want it all. I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. Yeah, that's better. That is the teenage anthem. Parents would tell you. That is the teenage anthem. I want it all, I want it all, I want it all. I want, if you're a teenager, is that correct? Yeah. That is the teenage anthem. And you see, for many in the midst of what I call the volatile teenage years, it's not easy to be a teenager. Most parents are just restrictions. We are not human beings. And we were never young. We are just restrictions and we do not understand. We are blockages. And so often parents are broken hearted when their teenage says to them, Do you know, when I'm a parent, I'm going to listen to my children. One of those haunting songs of my teenage years was by a couple of guys from Liverpool called Lennon and McCartney. And they had this amazing line in a song called She's Leaving Home. And it goes like this. She's leaving home after living alone for so many years. And I've always wondered what the parents felt like when they heard that song. Listen to this again. She's leaving home after living alone for so many years. 
how impossible to be a parent. And so we read in verse 13 that the son travelled to a distant country. Now the distant or the far country can be distant in terms of miles, but its significance is in terms of relationship. You see, when there's a bereavement in a family, the vicar doing the service or the minister finds out absolutely everything about the family if you just listen. Because one of the things you would ask, for example, a grieving widow would be something like this. Do the family live nearby? That's all you have to ask. Do the family live nearby? And it's so sad when they say, well, my son lives around the corner, but we had an argument once, and that is really painful. He's round the corner, but we had an argument once. And You see, you can be distant in miles, but close in relationships. I am 60 miles from my two of my grandchildren, Bethan, whose party we went to yesterday, and little Caleb. And a year ago, Bethan, who's now nearly four, uh, she went up one of these little slides at playgroup and fell off and broke her arm. Right? We didn't write to the council that... As parents, we know that accidents happen, and you know, but she broke her arm. And her mum, my daughter, said she's very sad. So my daughter rang me up and said, Bethan wants to speak to her granddad. And she could only just speak. And this is what my granddaughter said to me on the phone. Granddad? Arm? Broken? She had to tell her granddad. And I said to her, well, granddad loves Bethan. And she smiled and gave the phone back to her mum. You see, you can be distant in miles, but you can be close in relationship. You can be close geographically, but miles apart in terms of relationship. And it's so sad when that's in the family. And you see, this son in the story was so blinkered and selfish, he had no idea of the pain he was causing to his father. And so the son took his inheritance. We read in verse 13, he squandered his property in what it says, dissolute living. And we read from verse 30 that part of that reckless living was prostitutes. So the dad had spent all his money earning this life The son had taken his inheritance, and what had he spent it on? Well, how that must have broken the heart of the father. You see, the son tried to feed, tried to fulfill himself by feeding his sexual appetite, but it left him completely empty because it always does. It always does. And the son left to find freedom, he became a slave of his appetites. For the more we grasp, the emptier we become. And if you ask a child to draw a picture of this story, the child will draw a picture of a man eating pig's food. But that's not accurate in this story. If you read verse 16, it says, he would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He was so hungry that he would love to have eaten pig swill. That's how far down he went. 
But in the pit of despair, the younger son, the prodigal son, came to his senses. And what brought him to his senses was the memory of love, and it was a father's love. Verse 20, so he set off and went to his father. And as he started off and was coming back to his father, there would have been two voices in his head. And you may have heard these voices yourself. The devil says, don't go, you're dirty. Love says, come. The devil says, you abused your father, he doesn't want you anymore. Love says, come. The devil says, you're a no-hoper. Love says, come. And the devil says this sometimes, stay here and die. Love says, come. You've got to understand where those voices come from. Love says, come. And the son came home, was welcomed, and the wanderer in the arms of love began his confession in verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Treat me like one of your hired hands. You see, the father in this story is God, and he wants to welcome you home again. And what we see dramatically in this story is the contrast between the character of God and the character of human beings. It's a fairly stunning contrast. You see, I was brought up on Ilclimore, so my local team when I was a boy growing up was Leeds United. My hero was the guy that played centre-half for Leeds and England and won a World Cup medal, winner's medal. Who was it? Jack Charlton, a guy called Jack Charlton, brother of Bobby Charlton, the famous Man United player. And Jack Charlton, for many years, was my hero. Sent half for Leeds United, World Cup winner's medal in 1966, if you've got a good memory. And he was my hero until I was watching him live one night on television. And he talked about what he called his little black book. And in the little black book, what he used to do was write down the names of all the people that had kicked him in a game that he hadn't managed to kick back. And he wrote them all down. And he didn't cross them out until he'd kicked them in another game. He was my hero no longer. And for that, he was banned from international football. He never played again as an international centre-half. Never because of the little black book. And I think the football authorities were right. Because what I was taught by my granddad and my father, fiercely competitive during a game. I was brought up in Yorkshire League cricket. It's not a game, it's life and death. I understand Bill Shankly's quotation. I understand it. It's not a matter of life and death, it's more important than that. That's what Bill used to say. Yorkshire League cricket, I understand that, but when the game's over, that's it. All sorts of things can happen in a game, but when it's over, you shake hands, you have a drink in the bar. That's what I was taught to do. Fiercely competitive in the game. And when I became a Christian, some people thought I might become less competitive. <laughs> not hitting a hockey ball at 90 miles an hour, you're not. I was just as competitive. God gave me a gift. I was going to use it, and I played to win. But when the game's over, that's it. And I think they were right, because that is vengeful. But you see, a lot of us will use this phrase, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That is rubbish. 
That is right. You can't have it that way. If you forgive, you forget. If you don't forgive, you don't forget. You can't have it both ways. And I think the difference between a lot of us, even Christians and Jack Charlton, is Jack Charlton was honest. He was honest. The wars that go on in families because we say we forgive but we won't forget. It's awful. Yet the character of God, entirely different. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 9. You see, I used to be a police chaplain in Moss Side in Manchester, which was pretty demanding. It was pretty demanding. As well as being chaplain of the football club and leading a church, I was privileged to be a chaplain with the police in Moss Side. And it was rough. Shootings, knifings, all the time. All the time. And one day I got this phone call saying, would I go to a police station, Elizabeth Slinger Police Station in West Didsbury. I said, can you tell me on the phone what it's about? They said, no, we can't. So I said, it's serious, I'm on the way. I got there and they took me into a cell with a guy that they'd arrested the night before. And one of the things, again, about being uh, clergy is I can listen to somebody on my own. I don't, we don't have to have anybody there, no independent witnesses. I am on my own with the person that's been arrested. I've done it many, many times. And I got in there and they slammed the door and I thought, if it's serious, I wonder what this guy's done. What am I doing in here with this guy? What has he done? And he said, I said to him, how can I help you? And he said, I want to ask you a question. Because the police said, we've arrested him for something, but he won't speak until he's spoken to you. So I said to this guy, how can I help you? He said, can God forgive me? What would you have said? Well, you don't know what he's done. You don't know what he's done. I said, what's happened? He said, well, I had a lovely day yesterday. I went fishing with my boy. And we had a lovely day. And at the end of the day, we came home and a smashing time with my son. And I thought, I'll just pop down the club and have a drink. He said, I had too much to drink. I got involved in a fight and we went outside. And I said, the one thing I always used to do when I came home from fishing was... You'll know if you only know people that go fishing, they tend to put the fish knife in the sock. And at the end of the day, he'd take his fish knife out of his sock and he'd just put it in a safe place at home. He said, I forgot. I forgot. And as we got involved in this fight, I put my hand down to my sock and he said, last night, I killed a guy. Can God forgive me? And you're thinking, I'm a nice vicar. I say to him, of course he can. Actually, I am a father. Before I'm a minister of the gospel, I am a father of four children, and we were sick to the back teeth of people being shot and knifed on the road outside where we were lived. The two gangs, Longside and Moss Side, always warring, always shooting each other, always knifing. And I was sick to the back teeth of it. And I reacted as a father. I'm thinking, who is this guy? He's ruining our streets. My children are walking up and down. My children at 16 couldn't even go get a loaf of bread from 100 yards away. That's what we lived amongst for 14 years. Great church, challenging area. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Can God forgive me? My next phone call is probably from the police saying, there's a family around the corner. Their son was stabbed to death last night. Can you go and comfort the parents? And there's the guy in front of me saying, can God forgive me? And I was angry. I'm a dad. 
I'm living in Moss Sign. These people going around knifing people, taking people's lives. And then I remembered this scripture. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I thought, I'm here to share with this guy the word of God. So that's what I did. And I said, this is not in the Bible, but I tell you, I, I want to pray with you. I want to share God's forgiveness with you. But please, as soon as I finish, will you confess to the police? Because these parents need to know that their son's murderer is still not walking the streets and going to do it to somebody else. That's exactly what happened. You see, we remember. We're vengeful. Forgive but won't forget. Even as Christians, we do it. But the God whom we worship, if we confess our sins, is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from most unrighteousness. No. All. 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 The day I was converted, 10th of February, 1972, I said to myself, and I made a promise, if this Jesus thought I was worth dying for, and through his death has forgiven me all my sins, on his Sabbath, which is a Sunday, it's the resurrection day, I will be in his church with his people, praising him, even if England get beaten by Germany. Because my God is greater than that. And he is worthy to be praised. And nothing will stop me from worship. Absolutely nothing. Because the blood of Jesus has taken away my sin and cleansed me from all unrighteousness. Nothing will stop me worshipping him. Nothing. And you see, in this story, there's an elder brother. What does he think? Well, he's livid. The elder brother's absolutely livid. His brother's blown his inheritance, he's been with prostitutes, come crawling back on his hands and knees, and his father kills the fatted calf. He's angry, he's jealous, and I have every sympathy. You see, he's been a brother, but he's never been a father. You change the day you become a father. Everything changes. The older brother never been a father, so he never understood about a son coming home again. Some of you may have had sons that have drifted. Your greatest prayer is they come home again. That they come back to Jesus. I'm a father. It changes the moment you become a father. You see, it's not the brother who speaks in verse 32. It's the father. He says to the older son, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost. He's been found. That's a father speaking, not an elder brother. You see, this parable is not primarily about sons. This is about the father's heart. He forgives the younger son. He understands the older boy. I sometimes wonder what some of you, even as Christians, think you've done, which is so unforgivable. So Even as Christians, we can think like that. I wish I'd never done it, but I have. God could never forgive that. He could never forgive it. Some of you may have committed sexual sins and think, I am so dirty. God can never forgive that. He will not understand. He, won't hand he can't handle that. Some of you have acted appallingly to your parents and think, how can I live with that? How can God ever forgive that? 
Some of you have done things which hang around you like a prisoner's ball and chain. I had a lady come to me in our church in Manchester, and she said, can I share something with you? And I said, yeah, you know you can share anything. You won't tell anybody. You won't give any names away. No, 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 no. I said, what is it? She said, I feel so dirty when I come to church. I love to come and worship, but I just feel permanently dirty. And I said, well, what is it? She said, well, 25 years ago I had an abortion and my husband doesn't know. I just feel so dirty. So we prayed together and she wept and she wept and she wept because we have a God that forgives and heals and it's real. It's real. You see, the devil calls you dirty. Your father calls you home again. Your father wants to wrap his arms around you and forgive you. The younger son had abused his father's love, wasted his inheritance on prostitutes, was at the bottom of the heap. He longed to eat pig's swill. As he turned round and started to confess his sins, his father was running towards him. And this parable leaves us with a simple but profound life-changing message. Come home. You will find forgiveness in your father's arms. You may think it's unforgivable. It's not. Come home. You'll find forgiveness in your father's arms. And I want to close there, but it may be that as the service is coming to a close... Some of you may just want to come and pray with one or two of your Christian leaders. I don't know how you do it. You can tell them. It doesn't matter. But if you know that God has spoken to your heart and you simply want an older Christian just to pray with you, nothing complicated, nothing said to anybody else, just, I know God's speaking, speaking to me. I just want somebody to pray with me and then just leave it. Then Jesus do that at the end of the service. Very simple message. Unforgivable. No. Come home. You'll find forgiveness in your father's arms.